the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on this Tuesday evening from Berlin this week after a couple of weeks of not exactly globetrotting, but certainly country hopping. My name's Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast, the first, very possibly, very probably, the last in a new series, which, as I said on Twitter today, we may call an overpriced fancy pants oat milk flat white with... Uh, the guest, the victim, the heretic who ordered that caffeinated atrocity at an inappropriate hour of the afternoon will be introduced shortly. But before that, joining me for the first part of the podcast, the amuse-bouche. He's making his way towards the ring now in his silk gown and leopard print trunks. It's one of the voices of cycling on Eurosport GCN. Some would say the voice of cycling full stop. It's Rob Hatch. How are you, Rob? I'm very well. I just don't know what's more worrying the thought of me being the voice of cycling or the whole trunk thing. Uh, I think... Uh, Are you not from... I mean, I got that. Obviously, that was inspired by visions of Prince Nassim Hamid. Ah. Were you not from similar neck of the woods? Yeah, I'll, I'll get this. Northwest. Come on, I'll give you... He's, he's a Lancastrian, yeah. He was a, he's a Lancastrian. You're a Lancastrian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Northwest, but yeah. Not. So I was, I was almost on the... On you were the getting there. You were getting there. But I mean, it's really... This weekend, Daniel, it's really important to distinguish which part of the Northwest because there's a pretty nasty football derby coming up between uh, Blackburn Rovers. Leeds the, against... oh, <laughs> the mighty Rovers <laughs> and nasty Burnley. Oh, OK. okay. But anyway, we'll leave that. Um, there, that's the, the football okay, mention for the week. Six, there go, yeah, there go 60% of the listeners. And Rob, how the devil are you? And what have you been up to the last couple of weeks? Very, very well, thanks, mate. Very, very well. I've actually been back to my spiritual home in the Canary Islands. Any of you know me will know that I, I went there and as a teenager, sort of ended up staying around there, hanging around there, talking like an Aryan, just like a talk like a Lancastrian. And uh, it was nice to be back there for the first time in a, a few years, actually, with COVID and everything. And I had a lovely holiday and... First time I've had a proper holiday for a long time as well. Um, Any cyclists? Many cyclists over there? There were quite a few uh, bike riders over there. A lot of triathletes, because I was actually on Lanzarote this time. Uh, I was checking out the Club volcanoes. Yeah, I went through there. Didn't stop there, obviously. Not my favourite place on the island, but um, there's some nice restaurants and bars to eat in La Santa, the town itself. So, yeah, lots going on. I was up in Aria, down in Uga. Really, really nice to be back there. Well, Rob, um, I mentioned the format of this week's episode. Um, what, did, what did we call it? The, for the fancy pants, the overpriced fancy pants, mm. oat milk. Everything's overpriced now, isn't it? With, yes, it is, with inflation and so forth and so on. Um, today's podcast will be an extended interview with that guest I mentioned. We'll wait, uh, we'll wait a little while longer before we introduce him, before we mention who that is. But as always, we're going to start with a bit of a news roundup before we get to that. And then, um, well, I will perform that news roundup. Um, last week, Rob, last week, you weren't here. We said that Jay Vine had poured cold water on rumours of his imminent move from Alpus in Phoenix to UAE Team Emirates. Well, I reckon old Jay was sitting there furiously refreshing his cycling podcast feed until last week's episode dropped just so he could make us look silly because no sooner had we gone live than UAE announced the deal was done. Vine has signed a two-year contract with Tadej Pogacar's team. Um, interesting one, interesting one. They've got Vine and Vink, haven't they now? The two computer they game stars. Vink. They have Vink, um, who featured on last week's cycling podcast in fact but jay vine i mean how do you see him being used because you know he won two stages of the Vuelta España. there is this sort of this trope about jay vine that he's still very inexperienced i think that that 
is true to a certain extent. Um, there are still things that he knows himself he needs to brush up on um, as far as riding in the peloton and so on and so forth are concerned. But I, I struggle to see him as just, as many people imagine, him just sort of slotting him slotting into Tadej Pogacar's mountain train and becoming that kind of mountain android. There's a lot of riders who've been signed this year by UAE Emirates who I struggle to imagine in that position as well. I mean, even mm. someone like Tim Wellens, he's gone there this year, obviously talented. And again, he, you know, he's not going to be a guy who's going to be a, a leader in any of the big stage races or anything like that. But maybe because we haven't seen riders like that in these roles before, we're going to struggle to sort of imagine them until they have to do it. And I mean, it didn't work badly for Rafael Micah, did it, when he went there and Davide Formal and they'd already been leaders. But with Jay Vine going the opposite way, sort of on his way up, um, I couldn't have imagined him doing what he did at the Vuelta España either. So why can't he surprise us all again? I would say he's lesser, to, to use computer game parlance, uh, the great risk of alienating anyone born in, I don't know, um, after about 1990. Um, he's less lemming. He's less a lemming, more, I don't know, uh, sort of Super Mario type figure, would you not say? I was more of an Amiga man than a sort of Nintendo well, man. So there you go. I was more in the lemming camp. Um, Jay, yeah, I mean, he's obviously got the numbers, hasn't he? He's got, he's got the watts. He showed that on, on, uh, on the online platforms and what have you. Then, you know, he's he has proved himself on the road, so why can't he go a step further? Obviously, UA see something in him, so it's, it might be a surprising move, but we'll see how it works out. Rob, from one climber to another, Nairo Quintana has lost his appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport against the decision to disqualify him from the Tour de France after he tested positive for the banned painkiller Tramadol. You'll remember the three-year contract renewal Nairo Mann had just signed with RKS Samsic was torn up when the news first broke a few weeks ago. And indeed, the Colombian still doesn't have a team for next year. He is, though, still free eligible to race, the Tramadol ban being a health rather than an anti-doping measure or sanction. And he still maintains that he never took the drug. Uh, Nairo Man, 33, Rob, in February. He was sixth in the tour before that disqualification. Um, there's not... Uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport haven't published yet, I don't believe, the full... They, they always publish the sort of case notes yeah. and the justification for their decisions. But sort of based on what they have published, it seemed to me that Nairo um, Quintana's lawyers were mainly attacking this distinction that has been made between... Uh, tramadol being a health measure and anti-doping measure and they sort of they were questioning whether the the UCI had any sort of grounds to impose any kind of sanction given that it is not essentially an, a, a doping infraction I mean you'd have to also wonder what the term sanction means here because basically all they were doing was disqualifying him from their event so I guess if if you're the UCI and you make the rules then if you don't abide by those rules, surely you can be disqualified from from the event. You know, it's like saying, I guess, you know, if you've had a red card in football, but you want to carry on playing the full 90 minutes. You know, I don't know, um, because it isn't to do with, like you said, doping and what have you. I think the biggest problem for Quintana, whatever happens with with, with any results and, and what's published and after this is sort of reputational damage now, isn't it? Because, you know, if you're a team and you're in the MPCC, for example, in, you know, if you're a member of that organisation, you're not supposed to be using Tramadol anyway, can you sign that rider then now? And, and at 33 years of age, it's not going to be easy for Nido Quintana. Um, 
and with most rosters already full up for next year. Uh, Rob, in the course of, in the making of this week's podcast, um, I did do a bit of research into the Court of Arbitration for Sport and I was pretty, I was quite tickled by the fact that Court of Arbitration for Sport has a Google review um, as restaurants. It won't and bars be getting fired and, from Nido, would it? Well, no, and it reminded me of the time that we left a zero star <laughs> review for a pizzeria in the Port de Soya in Mallorca. I think the only time either of us ever left a Google review for a restaurant or or any eatery. Um, and well, that, the the naught stars in that case for what was the name of the place? Domenico's. Thankfully, it's shut down now. Yeah, but it became infamous, didn't it, in Mallorca yes. for having, I think it had the worst Google review in mm. Mallorca and it was fully deserved. Uh, Rob, next item. Uh, talking riders who still don't have a contract for 2023, Mark Cavendish's expected move to the French team hitherto known as B&B Hotels. KTM still hasn't materialised. And indeed, there are mounting concerns that the team boss, Jérôme Pinot, does not have the sponsors and funding in place to deliver on the ambitious plan that Cavendish and other new recruits were reportedly sold. Pinot told Le Telegram newspaper last week things were moving in the right direction, but according to reports in another paper, Le Parisien, Pinot was summoned to the French National Cycling League on Monday because they too wanted answers about the team's present and future. In this situation, um, you have to say that no news is not good news. Bad news. Yeah, just because, and again, I'm saying this from a point, I've just come back from two weeks holiday. I haven't been speaking to anybody in cycling. I have no knowledge of the situation apart from what you just told us, Daniel, and and the and the news we've all been reading. But just from pure publicity standpoint, if you had a brand new sponsor, if you had a superstar like Mark Cavendish signing on before the Tour de France or around the Tour de France presentation, you would have wanted to release that news and made a big fanfare about it. There had been a press conference scheduled, hadn't there? That was cancelled. Um, so I can only put all that together and say, unfortunately, hopefully it will resolve itself for all involved and the contracts that have been signed and everything. Let's hope it resolves itself. But on the present ground, it doesn't look good, does it? No, it doesn't. And the same point that we made about Quintana is also valid here, that there aren't many options still available, particularly when you bear in mind that Cavendish, um, you know, was well... I think it's well known, well documented that he was going to take a lead out man with him. There was a, some sort of semblance of a lead out train, I think, being talked about and formed sort of behind the scenes. These conversations have been going on for weeks and weeks that we've heard reports about a bike sponsor, BMC. Um, I don't know how much Cavendish had to do with the negotiation for BMC to come on board, but I believe he was certainly happy that they were coming on board because that was a bike that he thought that he could work with. So there's a lot of work that's gone into this project and for him to have to potentially change his plans and to start a new negotiation with a different team at this point would probably, you would imagine, be quite difficult. I mean, it becomes a uh, an exercise in jot do- um, dot joining and just identifying where he could conceivably go. I mean, there are a few rumours going around about Israel Premier Tech. Um, that's a team that has always had money. That's, that's a team that's always shown a certain taste for shall we say, more experienced riders as well. Um, they they wanted Cavendish, I believe, um, a few months ago, and they didn't think they were going to get him, but that could be an option. And let's remember that they need any help they get now to get into Grand exactly. Tours. And if you have Mark Cavendish as well as the likes of Chris Froome, the big names, then surely that increases the chances. Have you been invited to the Tour de France or any other Grand Tour you want to go to next year? Rob, talking of riders who have retired, not 
riders who are who are inching closer to the twilight of their career. Uh, the recently retired, in fact, 2017 Giro d'Italia winner Tom Dumoulin has given a lengthy interview to the Dutch newspaper NRC in which he's talked about his future plans or lack thereof for the moment. I'm starting with a completely blank canvas and I have no idea about the direction that I'm going in. I'd like to leave it that way because it feels good, Dumoulin said. He was also asked about his recent trips to Australia for the World Championships as a fan and Fuji and Costa Rica as a bit of a flaneur. Um, indeed, he said he'd been staying in youth hostels. Dumoulin also admitted, he told NRC, that last week he and his wife had decided to get a divorce. Um, so that was that was sad and quite surprising. Always surprising. Um, not least, Rob, because I remember quite well um, speaking to Tom Dumoulin shortly after he got married in 2018. That was when his stock was very, very high. Um, he was always quite a private guy. And there was always the sense that he was sort of cultivating lots of other interests away from cycling. In fact, I remember asking him about his honeymoon in 2018 in Nepal. And he didn't really want to talk about it. I mean, he wasn't prickly um, or... or um, hostile in any way but he he was someone who guarded his private life his private sphere quite keenly um but you know i was sort of reflecting on tom dumoulin's career when i read this interview earlier this week and you know 31 years of age only and i think it's easy to forget what a superstar he was for two or three years you know i was looking back at some of his time time trial results and that the extent of his supremacy in time trials for two or three years you know he's winning time trials by big margins and that fantastic season i mean we all talk about the 2017 giro d'italia but um the following year 2018 he finished second in the giro and then second in the tour de france yeah, the second in the Tour de France one's always one that I have to be reminded of, actually. And and I think it just plays up to the point that you were just making about we all remember that Giro d'Italia win. But of course, the year after, he was in fantastic form as well. And that time Charlie won in, was it Esplet or Espleta, the French Basque country? Um on quite a moody day when Garrett Thomas was proclaimed the, the winner of the Tour de France, really. Um you know, he was in the rainbow stripes then as the world champion, top time trialist. And it, with everything that's happened both on and off the bike and in the world in the last three years, it is it does almost seem like another era that he was, you know, the superstar and one of the GC superstars right at the top because along came Pog. Then Rog started doing his thing as well. And of course, ever since we've had Remco Evenepoel, whilst a few have remained constant. And, and it is a shame to see him fall by the wayside. A shame for us watching on. But obviously, the most important thing is his happiness. And uh, we wish him all the best. And cycling's loss is youth hosteling's gain, apparently. <laughs> it sounds like time, it, yeah. When was the last time you stayed in a youth hostel? <laughs> Probably when I was at Erasmus or something like that. that Travelling Spain and Italy. Rob, the last bit of news in brief. Um, uh, again, more transfer news. The 36-year-old veteran triple Vuelta stage winner and former Maglia Rosa wearer, Alessandro De Marchi, he has finally found himself a deal for next year. Um, he'd been at Israel Premier Tech since 2021, but next year, we discovered a few days ago, he will ride for Team Bike Exchange, Jayco. We're going to hear from Alessandro De Marchi. Right now, in fact, I spoke to him earlier today. It's really a big relief, a big uh, breath of fresh air, finally. <laughs> it has been really, really stressful, really long for for all the second part of the season. Uh, I was, uh, I must admit, I was uh, a bit scared and a bit worried about, about the situation and uh, probably 
also this feeling didn't didn't help me on the on the bike but yeah in the end uh, also on the last part of the season i was i was finally finding a bit bit of my legs a bit of my feelings in the end everything uh, went well and uh, i'm really really happy to to first of all to to have found a, a contract but most of the happiness is about the the, the team because bike changes uh, is really a good opportunity a big team and I'm really, really happy. Just thinking about the Vuelta, I mean, you were you were in two breaks in the last week, and then you had a lot of races after that. You even did the the Gravel World Championships. I mean, t talk to me a bit about that experience of racing with that threat hanging over you of not having uh, a job for next year. I mean, how desperate was it, and how does that how did that affect the way that you were racing? In the end, it was not maybe really the idea to. So don't have the contract, but it was uh, more about the lack of opportunities, lack of uh, offers. Because there was a moment that really we were waiting uh, from many, many people, many teams, many, many situations. And there was a moment really that nothing was really coming. And that was the worst side of, of this situation. And probably, yeah, in the end, uh, it didn't it didn't really help me on the bike. Probably I was not really free with the mind, well, not, not really with the legs. But uh, we, we, we all know that uh, sometimes uh, the head is more important than the, than the legs. Did you start to think about what you might do if you didn't find a, a solution you were happy with? Did you start to think about uh, a life, a job, uh, a new reality? Yeah, of course. I mean, the life is not waiting you. So you, know, you, you need to pay the bills and everything. You need to pay the school for the kids and everything so i was starting to to think about that and i was not really ready to to say i stop a career in a in a way that uh, i really don't don't want i i'm not ready i'm not i was not thinking about this moment in this way and that that was something that really was really making me a bit angry a bit disappointed and also thinking about the, the opportunities after was influenced by 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 this feeling so I'm sure that right now I will be more ready for something like that if uh, it's going to happen soon again, but it's going to be completely different. This time uh, it wouldn't be really, really a, an, hard, uh, an hard thing to, 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 to live. Also from the beginning, when we were looking for a, for a team, I was not proposing me like I need to do one more year because I I just want to, to, to keep going. We were looking for the right place, not just one place to keep hanging on and mm. keep going. The idea is for sure to go more than one year. The deal uh, with Bike Change now is, uh, is about one year, but it's more about because uh, we find an agreement really late in the season, so many places are, uh, are gone. So I think in the in the first part of the next season, we will we will be already on the on the table for to, to discuss. Mm. And, and how nice is it, Alessandro, that you have, it seems to me you have a really specific, clear plan that has been given to you that they've signed you thinking about the Giro d'Italia, they've signed you thinking about all of the young riders in the team and you helping them. So you already have a clear focus even before the training camp, even before you talk about the actual race program. Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. Brent Copeland was a... Uh was really clear from the beginning. We want you because uh, of this reason, experience. They have a lot of young riders that they want to develop to uh, help to improve. 
and they they are thinking that a guy a guy with a, with my experience can can be can be a, an, an important rider and uh, and then uh, this thing about the, the experience and the, the young guys is uh, is uh, is going through the Giro d'Italia because it looks like the team will uh, will bring uh, these younger guys uh, into the Giro and they see me as a rider uh, with experience especially in the Giro so it's very really nice because uh, it never really happened that they ask you uh, specific things, a specific mm. role, and this is something that, as a rider, I really appreciate. But maybe, maybe more as a as a person that I really appreciate. Mm. So it's gonna be really, really nice. When we spoke at the Vuelta, you talked about this winter maybe changing some things anyway, and I remember you said you needed to update your methods maybe and try some new things, try some things that maybe younger riders are trying in training. What, what did you mean specifically? And, and is that still the plan? Yeah, yeah. Is this the plan? And right now I'm, I'm just coming back from the gym okay. where, uh, where I, I start training in a different way with a different coach. Uh, and that's one of the, the, one of the things, one of the examples, because I think that after so many years, I'm so used to have some kind of kind of training kind of way to to do the thing that probably uh, they are not working as in the past so if you want to stay at the, the level if you want to stay in the game you need to to adapt to change so i'm gonna use a bit more the the gravel bike i'm gonna use uh, also a bit uh, a bit more the gym of course and then uh, probably also i will try to to train a bit more in with other guys especially with the with the young guys of my region here from the, the cycling team Friuli. It's something that I miss a bit in the last uh, years. But I think again to be to be with the young people, with the young guys is really a big uh, a big key of improving yeah. right now. Yeah. I'm gonna ask you one last thing, Alessandro. So the Giro d'Italia we thought it was gonna finish in Trieste in your region in Friuli. Now it's finishing in Rome. Um, some people uh, aren't very happy for various reasons. You know, the, the Giro in Rome has never gone very well. And then there's the big transfer on the last day. I mean, what, what was your reaction to that news? I'm happy that the, that the Giro will, uh, will, pass my, will pass through my, my, my region in the last weekend. And, you know, uh, you, you need to know that the first uh, idea of the last, for the last stage was uh, to do the start in, uh, from Buya to oh, yeah. Trieste. Okay, yeah. So that, w- that would be the, the best way to, to end uh, the Giro. Then in the end it didn't work, but uh, okay, Rome is, uh, Rome is Rome. We all know that uh, it, would be, it would be super to have a proper stage without... Uh, Without problems, without uh, issues about the the road, so I'm a bit, uh, you know, I'm happy to go in Rome because for the Giro is important to 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 have a, such a big uh, a big final. I I agree with the idea, with the general idea of going to Rome. Yeah. But then uh, we all know, we also know that probably we, we will Rome will not be will not be ready. I would be super happy if we go to Rome and we see that there is a real big change in, in the in the roads and in everything. So let's try to to hope, uh, finger crossed, and, and we see what happens in Rome. Well, Rob, a uh, friend of the podcast, Alessandro De Marchi, good to know that he'll still be in the peloton next year. And, and well, you can you can hear the delight and the relief in his voice. 
I'm glad he's still around. He's the 30th and final rider put on the, the roster for next year by, by Bike Exchange. Of course, you mentioned the three Welter stage wins, the Mayarosa as well. He finished this season in really good form too, didn't he? He was up in the break in all the sort of end-of-season races that I was commentating on. And I almost forget he's won some pretty good races aside from those Welter stages. Trevali Varezine, brilliant race to win at the end of the season up in the north of Italy, as well as a stage of the Dauphiné as well. And um, more importantly, a really good character and, and by all accounts, a really, really nice guy as well. Rob, finally, it's time for the main event of the podcast. The much-anticipated, uh, much-ballyhooed new feature and overpriced fancy pants, Oat Milk Flat White With. Now, the, the, the Oat Milk Flat White was ordered. That is not... Um, that is not um, any kind of facetious embellishment on my part. Um, the subject of the following interview or the interview they're about to hear did uh, appall me by um, by ordering, as I called it earlier, that caffeinated atrocity. When we met last week in London, he was on his way to the Ruler live event. And Rob, it was, it is Fred Wright, the 23-year-old English London-born prodigy who has been impressing everyone over the last couple of years. Um, with his rise for Bahrain victorious. Um, Fred Wright, just to recap a couple of his highlights for the year. Well, there was a lot of near misses, but a lot of quite sort of high profile and eye-catching near misses. He almost won a stage in Bilbao at the Vuelta. He nearly took the red jersey that day as well. He came infuriatingly close a couple of other times in the Vuelta Espana. And there were some near misses at the Tour de France as well. He was second behind Mads Pedersen in Saint-Étienne. And... Prior to that, even earlier in the season, he was seventh in the Tour of Flanders. And again there, he was in, well, there was a moment in the race when he was in what became the winning break, really, the winning move. Um, Rob, I'm sure you have commentated on some of Fred Wright's very impressive rides this season and admired him from afar. Yeah, you mentioned he rides for Bahrain. The only thing left for him to do is to be victorious, isn't it? Because he, he's still chasing that first win, but... As you mentioned, the Welter, the Tour, he was omnipresent all season. But it's something that has been sort of bubbling under and bubbling under and has really exploded into life this year. He's been in top tens, he's been up there, he's been in breaks and in the classics, really impressive. You know, we all talk about those selections, don't we? And, you know, I, I really enjoy commentating on the classics and talking about these final selections that we see. And, and he was always there always there and again the only thing that is left for him to do is just to break that win and I start to get the feeling that once the first one comes the floodgates, the floodgates are going to be open and he's going to be a serial winner this guy. Rob without further ado I think we should take a journey back in time I've just ordered just just picture the scene Rob I've just ordered my espresso and um, Fred has just weighed in with his flat white and, and you've just well, walked out <laughs> Yes, I walked out in, a, in an almighty huff. Um, it's a meandering conversation. We touch on we touch on the the season that was. We touch on Fred's background. We touch, of course, on the infamous, the now notorious incident involving Primoz Roglic um, towards the end of the Vuelta Espana, which put Roglic out of the race, and of which for which there was well the postscript of Roglic and his team putting out a a pretty a pretty salty press release in which they kind of pointed the finger at Fred Wright. So there's all that and some more. Let's go back in time to London last week and let's hear from Fred Wright. 
Rob, before you say goodbye, I should also add that we are going to hear some commentary clips from your colleagues at GCN and Eurosport. Um, Fred Wright in action in 2022. But I'm going to say goodbye and thank you to you. No doubt you'll be back on the pod very soon. Thank you very much. Nice to be back with you. Nice to be back from holiday and uh, look forward to speaking to you all soon. Well, Fred, um, it's good to see you, first of all. You've just remarked, very unusual to see you outside the context of a mix zone at a bike race, but um, not quite your manner, not quite your hood, but we're in London, um, not far from where you grew up. Um, tell us, well, tell us first of all, where are we? Yeah, well, I mean, we're in we're in Shoreditch at the moment, which is not really a part of town that I'm familiar with, but no, it's it's nice to be to be in London. I'm obviously here doing the uh, Dude Ruler this uh, this evening and. Yeah, getting on stage and talking about myself, which is... Well, no, it's going to be about her new Jam, I think, rather than... But, yeah, talking about... Yeah, there'll be a lot of talking about my past season. About yourself. About, about my past season, and, yeah. I, I don't mind it, but, some, you know, sometimes... I'm, I'm looking forward to getting it out of the way. I mean, <laughs> in the course of the research for this very informal chat we're having today... Um, I know you're quite a regular on the podcast circuit now. Um, how, how how do you feel generally? I mean, as over the past year or so, particularly, you become a familiar face and a yeah. familiar name on the British cycling scene. Yeah, yeah. And um, every, I guess you're invited to quite a lot of events like tonight. But you yeah. do have to talk about yourself. How, I mean, how do you kind of enjoy or not enjoy that side of things? I think it's it's an interesting one. I think my I think I've noticed basically just since the, the last year and with how it went, sort of successes or whatever, I, I definitely have been asked to do more podcasts in the past sort of like couple months or so. And I, I don't mind. I like, you know, I really like sitting down and having a chat with chat with people. I think it's, you know, I don't, I don't mind it, but I have had to sort of make, you know, for the first time in my life, actually make a calendar and put in mm. when I'm doing things because otherwise I just, I just forget and stress about it. And yeah. My uh, yeah, my girlfriend said, "Yeah, you you've just got to make stop complaining. Like you want to do these things. Like you don't mind doing it, but just make a calendar so you're not stressing about it." So yeah, you seem to be I mean, somewhere. I've, I've turned up ten minutes late, so that. that um, but Fred, you seem to be. It's funny. Yesterday, I was talking to a couple of other guys for another podcast. Um, we were talking about Remco, and you know, as journalists, we often talk about the way riders communicate, and we're more interested in it than you guys are because yeah. you probably don't think, think twice about it but we were talking about Remco and saying that you know he's a guy who clearly like I said in the nicest possible way he likes the sound of his own voice like, he likes communicating he kind of enjoys interviews and one of the reasons I guess that well, you have become more visible more popular is because you you talk well and you seem to enjoy it yeah I think that's I think that's part of it I think maybe it's yeah, maybe it's inherited from my, my dad. I think well, he, I was, he likes he likes the next stop. he likes um you know likes the sound of his own voice. So maybe I'm I'm the same thing. You know, like he's always commentating on her, her novella drum. So I think it, it it runs in the family. But I saying that like I don't really like hearing things back. I like looking at you know it's like the end. sometimes like looking on the analysis of races or whatever like that. But when I'm just getting asked about more general stuff I kind of tend to I, I don't ever really watch them watch them over I think I just yeah I just find it a bit embarrassing I still find it embarrassing yeah. well, we'll ease your discomfort a little bit by talking about someone else and talking about your dad because again listening to all these many podcasts that you've done recently I mean you've covered a lot of ground with a lot of different people but um, the, you, 
your dad and your dad's job does kind of fascinate me. I mean, when you first appeared on the scene, it was like always kind of top line. Fred Wright, that whose whose father is an actor and has appeared in EastEnders, and um, not not much beyond that. But um, I was keen to just sort of ask you what it was like growing up with an, an actor, and and I looked through your dad's palmarès, <laughs> and he has been in, he's been in a lot of things. He's been a lot of UK dramas. He's often been a policeman, bizarrely, and um, it's one of those jobs being uh, well actors, actresses, and um, I think a lot of us can imagine, well, we think we know what it would be like. We, we think we know what that looks like, whereas if someone says they're a surveyor or they, you know, work, they're a, a I don't know, a merchant banker, we yeah. can't really relate to that. Yeah. Whereas an actor, we sort of imagine we know what that's like. But tell us a bit about, about yeah, living with think, an actor, growing up with an actor I as think, a father. I think you don't, um, the bit that obviously people don't see is that, yeah, I, you know, in terms of compared to other the, the industry and actors in, in general, I'd say my dad's had actually, you know, he's been pretty successful. But would he concur with that? I, but that's the thing. I think you know, like if that's if you compared all all mm. actors, that all everyone who wants to be an actor or an actress, you know, I think actually it's a really difficult, difficult kind of thing to to be in. And mm. yeah, I think growing up, he, you know, would get a few a few sort of parts here and there, but you know, most of the the sort of child he was the one looking after me and my sister basically most of the time because he'd have a job here and there and then mm. yeah have loads of time to look after us so maybe yeah I guess you could argue that's probably why the, the whole talking thing what you mentioned before like maybe that's that's mm. what it's all to do with because you know yeah I was messing around a lot with him sort of thing and what does that look like when he's preparing for parts or trying to get parts I mean is he in a sort of study and you can hear him reciting lines or yeah, yeah, like, I think what's really been rubbish the past sort of couple couple years is COVID and doing, like, self-tapes and having to record yourself and not going in to, okay. the, you know, to meet the casting director or whatever. And, yeah, I think he's... The thing is, he's, he's, he's definitely had... It's been a hard... You know, it's not been an easy... an easy sort of journey, really, for him. And I think, actually, as soon as I started going to Hernhill Velodrome and he started going to Hernhill Velodrome, sort of having that as well... It's kind of kept him, sort of kept him keep keep positive, keep trying because, yeah, Hernhill was basically where he spends most of his time, and actually, yeah, it's really, you know, it's really sweet. Like, you know, he came down and did, I went and did the chain gang session last night, and he was in the in the slower group and stuff. Like, he's he absolutely loves it, and he spends so much time there. I think what's nice now is because he's got to sort of, I guess he's yeah, he's 60 next year, so a lot of his mates that are all riding the track. They're all kind of, they're all like retiring. So although he's still trying to get work as an actor, it's actually quite, you know, he's he's living a pretty good life now. I think he was a bit more, probably maybe more stressed about it when he was, when I was a bit younger. But I think now, you know, he just rides his bike and. Drinks. He was a policeman. <laughs> I don't know why he's a policeman. You, get, you like, probably get pigeonholed. It's a bit like being a rider. You get pigeonholed as a, I don't know, a ruler who, with a fast finish like you, and you get sent to those races. Yeah, yeah. I think he, yeah, like he's. Always like not a very nice person as well. I can think of a lot of roles where he's just like kind of, kind of horrible characters, which is so the opposite. <laughs> yeah. If we were to take a walk with you and him around, I don't know, pr- probably not this area of East London today because you know there's there's a certain there's a crowd sort of um, well they're here for the ruler live, so you would get recognised. But if you took a stroll through, I don't know, down Oxford Street with your dad. Um, does it happen that one of you gets recognised and who is more likely to get recognised? I, I think I, you know, maybe in the future after in my 
with what I want to achieve in my cycling career, I'll, that would that would happen more often. But actually, what was great is he um, like one of the biggest parts he's, he he had was when he was a bit younger. I think actually my sort of my age now in the prime suspect and he, someone. So I was racing the Commonwealth Games and a guy had come up to me and said, "Oh, you're the guy who prime suspect," and that just like oh, that, made it. All oh, that time ago when things like that. Happened to him, it just makes his day. Like that was really that was ninety one, ninety to ninety three. I think I saw. Yeah, yeah, like a long time ago. And I think it was it was just funny the fact that you know I was sort of. I then went. My dad made sure I went and said hello to him because I was there, like doing the time trial at the Commonwealth Games. But then he's getting recognised for Prime Suspect. It's quite sweet. It was nice. You know, you mentioned well his sort of flourishing passion for cycling, which has kind of gone hand in hand with yours. But one thing that fascinates me about your generation of like the British riders is the well how you've all discovered cycling because back you know when i was um, well a teenager or whatever it was it was a difficult thing to kind of discover in the uk if you were growing up in the uk it was something that were either ran in the family very strongly like your dad was in a club or he worked for a bike shop um or there were very rare exceptions like me for example i discovered it out almost out of nowhere but you know you're part of this generation where i mean we as followers of the sport we can't keep track of how many of you there are there, you know the, the guy the under 23 who was riding in France and getting a few results everyone used to know who that one guy was because there the, was hardly anyone whereas now we get neopros appearing and we've never even heard of them British neopros yeah, so I, um, I think of just okay he's you know he's done quite a few races now but just thinking the way Os- is it Oscar Onley yeah. who was riding in Tour of Croatia all of a sudden like yeah. he's competing with Vingegaard yeah. and it's yeah. so with you Hearn Hill was obviously, the, and the fact that Hearn Hill is a bit of an institution in British cycling. You grew up how far away? About yeah, a, a minute on the bike. <laughs> so that that played a big role. No, that played a massive role, and I think it was that in combination with the London Olympics. Okay. I think the build up to that, where it all, yeah, I think of, I can imagine, yeah, more kids going down when I was, I would have been yeah, twelve or thirteen. So you're was... a classic kind of product of that British cycling wave, yeah, that gold yeah, rush. Yeah. I'd, I'd say... And um, your dad as well, to a certain extent. Yeah, I'd say, you know, up until the age of 19, I think I was, yeah. or 20 even, I was like, I'm going to be a... Um, I'm going to go to the Olympics on the track. And, yeah. you know, like it was like, yeah. go through the British cycling pathway, go on the, keep going on the track, do the team yeah. pursuit, win a gold medal, then go on the road. Yeah. But obviously it's it's changed almost in the space of a few months it was like no no that's actually, it's actually better we do it this way <laughs> yeah, yeah. the kids who you were going there with I mean what's was the sort of typical profile of them because again you know it's, an, it's it's also changed in the sense we always used to talk about cycling as a kind of working class sport and then everyone's aware that it's become more and more expensive but still you know especially for people listening you know abroad foreigners um they probably have a, a hard time getting this sort of putting a finger on you know who, who are these kids that are emerging out of um the uk you know what kind of backgrounds do they come from yeah i think you know it was it was always i wasn't you know getting the nicest bikes mm. and it was always a bit of a like oh we're gonna have to try and you know do these races on a not quite as good kit mm. as everyone else but it's still you know i still was extremely fortunate that you know both parents could take me up and down the country and take Mm. me to races I think it is at the you know at the moment in the sport it's a massive it's a you know it's a massive financial requirement I think it's only getting more expensive Mm. to to sort of be part of it and I think that's really why I kind of you know the first you know since maybe 
sort of 10, you go into the track, like you rent a bike. Yeah. Or you just, you know, there's a, there's a higher bike, so you go around and, you know, you don't have... The, the amount of equipment required to do the sessions at Herne Hill is that little bit less. That, that yeah. meant that's... I just would do that all the time. Mm. But even then, it's still, you know, it's still, it's still expensive. And, yeah, I kind of think... I don't really know how it's gonna, how it needs to change to be honest, but I think it's yeah. This, this is why I'm a, I'm a massive I'm a massive supporter and advocate of decathlon because in all seriousness, it's, it it makes it accessible for a lot of people who yeah, wouldn't I mean, ordinarily. No, no. I really think like you know I remember getting my first sort of pair of B twin shorts mm. and base you know baselet everything. Mm. Even now I go to decathlon to get a, a, a saddlebag because it's a tenner for a saddle like less than a tenner for a saddlebag. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for supporting the cycling podcast. If you'd like to follow them on social media, you can do so on both Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Super Sapiens Inc. Of late, they've been using the hashtag never bonk again, which is a reference to the cycling related phenomenon when the energy needle is close to zero. It seems to happen all of a sudden, doesn't it, when the legs stop going round and it's clear that the nutrition strategy on the day of a race or an event has not been quite right. Or perhaps more pertinently, it's the fueling strategy in the days leading up to an event, because that has to be right as well. Marathon runners, of course, describe this as hitting the wall, I think. So it's not just a cycling related phenomenon, but whatever your sport, you can use Super Sapiens to stay in your performance zone. The real time insights into your glucose levels will give you an idea of how your body responds to training and competition and fueling and rest and will help you uh, get the best out of yourself on event day if you'd like to find out more go to supersapiens.com or listen to the super sapiens podcast wherever you're listening to the cycling podcast you'll find it and before i hand back to daniel and his conversation with fred wright a big thank you to super sapiens for their support because it enabled simon gill and i to go off and ride the tour de cos our journey for explore visiting each of the scottish football league grounds on two wheels a big thank you to everyone who sent a nice comment about the series so far it's really been very gratifying to hear that so many of you have been enjoying it but uh, the journey continues and episodes are being released daily this week and the series will conclude early next week now back to daniel and fred wright Fred, just talking about equipment, there's another thing I was going to ask you about them. Um, you know, you're part of this generation that's that's had success young, and you did your first Tour de France two years ago at 21, 21? Uh, 22, 22. 22. And, and, you know, you're, you've seen it with Remco and Pogacar and you'd have heard everyone talk about it, that this is a new thing that people are competitive when they're 20, 21. Yeah. And one of the things that we talk about is the availability of the the same tools that pros have for kids, teenagers when they're 12, 13, 14. So power meters and even things like Strava because that provides really good feedback and you, yeah. a really good way to measure yourself. Just, just talk to me a little bit about how those things came into your life as a young cyclist. I think I'm quite 
I'm happy, lucky, lucky almost, I think, in a way that mm. I did, you know, I did juniors. I was a junior mm. just a year before sort of Remco came in and almost changed changed the game, really. Like, I, you know, it wasn't a case of power meters. It was still, I was still sort of training on on feel, like, yeah. kind when of... When did you get your first power meter? Probably when I was first year under 23, which is, and now I think, you know, there might even be under 16s with, yeah. with power meters. And I think even, you know, even now, sort of getting back into the swing of things... After having some time off, I think mm. yeah, I don't want to look. Don't want to look at that bar meter at all because, yeah, it doesn't. The the relationship between that and the feeling is not quite what it was mm. a few months ago. So I think it's it's so it's a useful tool, but yeah, I kind of worry about all of these. A lot of these kids getting so so into it, mm. not into it, but like so. Yeah, there's almost so much pressure to do these numbers, and mm. and I think I'm in a position now where I kind of know. You know, I know what my my numbers are and what my abilities are, but I can't. I don't think I, they're not exceptionally exceptional. But it's almost about learning. You've got to learn what you have to do with the numbers rather than how to just be as strong as possible. It's like it's not a case of being. Yeah, only a certain number of guys will do. Be the GC guys that do the seven watts per kilo or whatever. I think you kind of have to work out I'm quite yeah I'm happy that I've sort of worked out what my mm. where I can use my my power so to speak because it's yeah I think you can really obsess over it and it's almost it's good but it's almost dangerous I think I think to to think about what is as well because you know weight becomes and in, gets involved yeah. as well and then like yeah what, what about Strava when did you first start using that um you, you sim- do use it now don't yeah. you similar time I really like it now but yeah again Strava's Strava's a bit more, I see it as a bit more sort of friend, like... Yeah, it's just that, I mean, if you can imagine a world, if you can imagine, if you didn't have either of those things, I mean, the things that pros used to talk about, I mean, there was a climb in Tuscany, Montecero, that became mythical, purely based on, like, pros' times in training. Yeah, and yeah. they used to come... But, you know, they, they, were, they were performances done on different days, and they couldn't... Yeah, re- they weren't yeah, really yeah. comparable, you but get- that was the only feedback you had, whereas... You know, I mean, I think all of us who do any kind of amateur, you know, cycling or whatever, having those kind of benchmarks is really useful. And, you and, it, and you know, if you're running or you're cycling every day, you can see yourself improve quite easily. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, that was simply not possible. I think, yeah, I think that's where Strava really sort of yeah. comes into its own in terms of getting people that just like riding their bikes mm. and do it as, as a hobby. That's kind of a massive, massive thing. And I... Yeah, I, I love looking on Strava and seeing like what, but I kind of tend to, yeah, I have a bit of a competition with, like with Ethan sometimes because he just he goes for quite rogue kind of like long ones on his TT bike sometimes. So, you know, occasionally I'll be trying to, <laughs> but but I think I've never really had that. Oh, I can sort of imagine sort of young, maybe juniors or something thinking that if I do this Strava, you don't you don't want to, you got to see it as like a, it's a tool. It's not the be all and then you know whether you can go up a certain climb mm. at a certain number of watts and that's going to get you a pro contract I think mm. but that's kind of how the way it's going almost it's like I think that's isn't that that's why they sort of Vingegaard was yeah because it was like spotted I mean the team noticed uh, a great time in, on the Code Rates in yeah, Spain yeah. yeah so I mean maybe that is the way it's going but I think I'm I'm happy that the path with the pathway that I took in 
to to be the pro where there wasn't so much like these you know you you have to do these numbers it was more like oh this guy's got these results let's you know let's 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 sign him up so yeah definitely i think remco sort of changed sort of changed the game really which is a I think it's almost a shame because I think he was he's just a once in a yeah. I'd like I to don't think. think that because we've sort of seen these guys emerge and every one of them you know whether it's Bernal in the first instance everyone suddenly we're used to sort of redrawing the whole kind of future of professional cycling thinking right that's it now yeah. Bernal's next 10 years then Pogacar comes along next year and we do it again then Remco comes again next year and and we do it again, and just that yeah. pattern makes us think that maybe, it would probably be. Yeah, yeah. I, you, no, you can see why you know people think there will be mm. more, and maybe there maybe there will be more. I, I just hope not, you know. Mm. Like, <laughs> but then maybe you know. I think you know the sort of path I've taken. I think it's yeah. I'd like to think like you know. I was when I was on I was on G's podcast, yeah. and he was he said he was saying that he's he still did his best twenty minute power in the top or something like that. You know, like he's he's still getting better. So I think. Yeah, with these sort of things, you can only focus on yourself. I think that's what—that's the biggest thing, a bit of advice I'd give to any junior. You know, like mm. you can get all—you can get so wrapped up in oh, he did that, they did this, yeah. and I think that's what. Yeah, you can only focus on how you can get a bit better, rather than like oh no, they did, they can do that, and I, I can't or whatever. Because yeah. yeah, I mean, you're early developers and late bloomers, don't you? But where would where would you have situated yourself in that? I mean, at what stage in that kind of escalation? through junior ranks to under 23s did you start being really successful I guess you know as soon as I was first year under 23 I was okay. I'd, I'd stepped up yeah. like on the road and yeah sec- second year junior I didn't I had a couple crashes I wasn't like you know I was good on the road but I wouldn't have I think now I probably wouldn't have you know I wouldn't have been one of the juniors that would have gone straight to straight to pro to world tour you know I think it would have been it will, yeah, I still would have probably gone under 23 if I was a junior now sort of thing yeah. with the results I had. But Who was there? We talked about Remco. You kind of avoided Remco, didn't you? Because he's one year... One year younger. Un- yeah, yeah, younger. Yeah. And you also avoided Pogacar, didn't you? Because he's one year older. Is that right? Yeah, although I do remember... I think me and Ethan will always remember the, the day in peace. I think it was in peace race when we were both on the GB national team and he just... He just rode away, and like it was just like, wow, this guy is so good. And then that was, you know, that was the year we sort of won Lavenir, and it was like, yeah. then I don't think we thought, okay, he's going to win the Tour de France next no. year, no. or come third in the. Did he, was he third? It in the was. World, uh, the you, I think you're talking about 2018, yeah, and in 19 he won three stages of the yeah, Vuelta yeah, and three second. You wouldn't have seen. You wouldn't have. You wouldn't have called that. I definitely wouldn't think you'd have, we'd have said that. So I guess it's. Yeah, I think it is just the. Been that access to the data and the training and stuff. I think that's what I almost think the tra- yeah the trainers maybe the trainers changing to what it was before. Or I think people are from what some of the older guys say. I think people are just a bit more serious. <laughs> yeah, well that's true, isn't it? I think um, you know any question of well of of not making those sacrifices that people say you need to make i mean it's just they just don't contemplate it do they whether it's you know even in november going out on big benders and people just generally don't do it do they yeah we'll see yeah we'll see what after. i don't know maybe I don't, you do I don't, I don't know what ethan's playing what, what yeah what it could be tonight after ruler who knows it's, it's still absolutely enthralling to me uh, magnificent fred wright having a fantastic run 
of things here for Bahrain victorious. Uh, not exactly been a, a quiet year for him, but this is a, a fabulous effort he's showing now, Dan. It is, yeah. I saw that on the news at the start of the year, and I think I mistook him for another. Well, Fred, just tell us. I mean, how have lost? What have you been doing the last three or four weeks since the end of the season? So I, so I've trained. This is my second week back, kind of riding and getting into the swing of things again. But I had four weeks off straight after Worlds, and I basically didn't. Yeah, I didn't touch the bike for four weeks, and had a two-week holiday on some Greek islands, and it was, mm. yeah, it was really nice actually. It was a good. I think it was the longest holiday I've ever been on and I've not really done a sort of two-week holiday where you can think I've only ever done like maybe seven or ten days holiday in my life and I think two weeks gives you those days where the, the end of the holiday is so far away that you just yeah. completely yeah to be completely relaxed like that was really good especially after yeah I felt like from sort of the tour till the end of the season was just non- all go so you did a lot of race days didn't you with two grand tours and a full classics program yeah and I don't know if I want to do two grand tours again oh really I, I, maybe maybe I, you know they went you know the world would seem to go go really well but I just I think because I got Covid in the run up to the tour and missed Tour de Suisse I think that if I'd have done Tour de Suisse I'd have maybe been better like gone back because I'd say I was probably going the best at the world I'd probably been going better at the tour but then been more tired at the end of the tour and then been then I wouldn't have done the world you know like it was sometimes the season kind of like forms itself but I mean Covid's kind of gone now so I hope so I mean I remember talking to you at the start of Welter and you sort of suggested you were only really there to look after Mikel Lander in the first few days it almost sounded to me as though you were going to leave quite early in the race and then you finished it strongly genuinely I think that was I was I wasn't like just playing it off I, I didn't think I'd be going as well as I was I don't think I think I um especially those, you know, that first week with them two breakaway days. I think that was, you know, form-wise, that was almost probably my best legs of the whole year. But then looking back to the year before, mm. those were the same... T- that was roughly the same time that Benelux Tour was, was on. Yeah. And I, you know, I, those were when I also had some of the best legs I had the year before. So you kind of start seeing these patterns. It's like, OK, that's... I'm going to start... I'm going to go well there if I... If, if I'm coming off the tour in that way that I could... Yeah. I mean, so if I don't know if a direct sportif or a coach has said this to you, but if you're someone who at the end of your second Grand Tour is going well, then you're someone who definitely shouldn't be saying I'm only going to do one Grand because you're already you're part of a very small subsection. I mean, it's one of the, one of the kind of joys from my point of view doing the Grand Tours, particularly the Vuelta. You really see, I think people people at home turn on the racing and they kind of imagine that anyone in the race can do whatever they want but we see this kind of you know the cortege of riders in the morning and you can really really see some guys are zombies by yeah. the second half of a grand tour and um, it's so abundantly obvious that a lot of those guys are not going to be able to do a whole lot in the race and if you are one of those who is still you know able, able to affect, to stuff, affect yeah. the race in the second half of your second grand tour I think yeah I don't know what it. I'd really. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that I've just been riding bikes a lot for my whole. You know, for since I was a ten-year-old. I don't know. Like maybe I've built up just that very high level of base. But yeah, I think. I, I think sometimes it's maybe a mental thing as well. I don't know. Mm. I think it's. But yeah, I'm obviously sort of physiologically able to cope with the the, the sort of day-to-day stress. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it's just the fact you still live in Manchester. No offence to Manchester, lovely place, but the weather yeah. um, leaves a lot to be desired. And maybe you just, you know, you talked about enjoying 11 days in Greece. Maybe you were just enjoying three weeks, you know, yeah. clear skies. Yeah, I think, I think the, yeah, the enjoyment side of things. But then, you know, sometimes in the world it would get really dull because you're just going along. Mm. But it's still, you know, I, I really enjoy, I just, I really enjoy the life on the grand, on doing a grand tour. I think it's, you know the, the three weeks are long but they, they also go really quickly yeah. like that period doing the tour in the road it, it went by like all of a sudden I had one race left and then it was off season time it was like it really didn't feel like I'd done sort of three four months of the year <laughs> it all sort of rolls into one really so Fred you, you're back on your bike you said now just uh, again you know thinking about how sports possibly changed and why younger riders are, are more competitive now but just Tell us about your winter and what you know about your winter training. I mean, almost talk us through kind of week by week what you know from now until when the serious stuff starts the other side of Christmas. So I think potentially taking a slightly diff- different approach. Not necessarily different, but I think this winter's... Because I've started a bit... The past two seasons I've sort of finished almost like end of October time. So I think I've done my off-season now. So I think these first few weeks... I've almost taken it. I don't have to. We're not have to. Don't have to ride my bike that much. It's just sort of more of a slow build into it. These next these next sort of three weeks. So what are we talking? Three yeah. four hour rides maximum, or yeah, but almost. You know, the first week was sort of three hours maximum. I think this week, you know, it's fairly fairly similar. It's really not too much. But I'm you know trying to get back into a good routine. We're doing a bit more gym work as well, just to be just a bit more bit more solid and kind of almost as an injury prevention sort of thing i think it's quite a good thing to just to be doing i've been recommended it by various people so i've sort of got into a bit of a routine with that is that a lot of core work in particular yeah it's not actually i'm doing a bit more you know just more like sort of squatting and just making my legs stronger i think i think that's almost i I feel like that sort of covers you with the core work Mm. i think there's this like obsession with doing core work but i I don't know, but I don't know whether it's actually, you should be able to see a difference when you're doing, you know, you're putting a bit more weight on, and like pushing, mm. pushing, push, not yourself, I mean, on the bar or whatever. Mm. But I think with, with core, I've never really been like, thought that I've, when I've done loads of core. Right off. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know, like the, the kind of, it's all about your, your motivation and what you can do consistently. And I'm just trying to get into a bit of a consistent rhythm with, with a bit of gym. And then it's basically just slowly going to build up. Mm. The the gym will probably drop off a little bit, and then the the hours will just creep up, creep up until we get to the training camp. And I think I'm not really. The training camp's when starts on December the fifth, so not you know not too far away. And then of in you know at some point, well, me and Ethan are doing Gent Six Day together, so that's gonna that kind of throws a bit of a. But actually, I think that's probably gonna be quite good. Just yeah. sort of. Six well, I heard you talk about sort of having dreamt of of doing that at some point in the future yeah it's I was it's a weird one I almost would have said when I was 13, 14 that I'd have you know Tour de France Mm. and getting 16 you know like they weren't too too far because you know our club have these kind of pretty big trips Mm. every year to go to see Ghent so I just remember people sort of telling me about them and stuff so it was always like oh I really want to do Ghent one, one year so I think it might be really horrible and I might hate it. 
but the the actual the atmosphere and the experience itself is going to be great. So I'm really that's late that. November. Yeah, that's um, well, it starts on the 15th of November. So yeah. So you have to you're going to have to do some intensity before that, aren't you? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I think it, yeah, it might just be a case of the first night being a massive shock, and then I think that that is probably where the intensity may start for the sort of building up through the winter. Do you have access to a velodrome? Can you go and use Manchester? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've managed to jump on this this week already, and I do probably jump on a couple more times next week. So, yeah, that's that's handy. I think especially in the winter, being able to mm-hmm. jump on the track, whether it's, you know, I think it's good, you, you know, being in a bit more of a kind of racy position for longer periods of time. I think it it goes, you know, in the speed work, it kind of transfers mm-hmm. across the road pretty well, and it also. If the weather's a bit rubbish, you can get a decent training session out of it. So, And those are the sort of bland miles that you're doing at the moment or you will be doing in the next couple of weeks. I mean, you, do you actively avoid doing intensity or, you know, I mean, where you live, you, you, you have to do climbs and, you know, they're kind of, they're rough roads anyway sometimes. I mean, are you, are you really scrupulous about remaining under a certain intensity? Yeah, I think, I think I'm almost going to be more, more scrupulous, like you said. Yeah about it because it's yeah I think it's actually it's, it's going to be really important just to you know the volume of the last you know you have four weeks off but still did the Vuelta straight into going to Australia for the Worlds after the, the common games you know like it's such a big thing I think actually just sort of slowly building into it and then you know come you know come January I'll be probably come January training camp I'll be smashing out as, as quite a bit of intensity you know again the, inten- the intensity will start ramping up but I, I think I'm looking to do quite a lot more base before the real intensity mm. stuff and I mean you know it still, still involves sort of efforts but just mm. kind of steady steady efforts because I think I've learned as we were saying about sort of how I stay at a good level mm. uh, towards the end of Grand Tour I think it's when I've just got all that riding in my legs it's almost taking that that same philosophy with a little bit of track mm. to keep the speed there and yeah see what that's that's the idea <laughs> and that's my full training plan <laughs> and who looks after your training Fred Tim Tim Kennedy who works for the works for the team and I think you know it's really nice actually to, ha- to have done done three years to get sort of working together again mm. you start seeing patterns you start you can compare to last year and you know touch wood that it doesn't happen again but I broke my collarbone on the December training camp last year no. which wasn't ideal so already there there's an extra sort of I mean I was on the turbo pretty quickly but you know you can get another week there of, of base and stuff to build up so mm. I think yeah actually this last year this, it didn't start really how I wanted last year in the season so but maybe that was a good thing I don't know you don't know with these things like you know, I did I did some good good training like a good training block on the tur- turbo before the January training. Maybe that was really good. Like it's you don't it's... I mean you started relatively well from sort of opening weekend you were in reasonable form, were you not? Yeah, well I I be- I um but I crashed in I crashed in Saudi as well yeah. and basically had to, and had to pull out. And so which was just it kind of in my it was like really annoying and it kind of set the season off badly, but I think because of that crash and being stuck in in a hotel room in Saudi watching your teammates race with nothing to do I think when as soon as I got back home I did like you know a massive sort of two week block of training and that really that really set me up for the classics so I'm looking you know 
like I said, with patterns from last year, looking that similar kind of block next year and yeah. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. You can, of course, get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. Science in Sport fueled Simon and I as we travelled around Scotland on our bikes earlier this year. The series, of course, is going out now, as I said earlier on. And uh, Science in Sport's products, well, they got me out of jail once or twice. An emergency jail at the right moment just got me to the finish feeling good. And, well, my post-ride routine was just to have a bidon of Rego just to top up everything that I had burned during the day. So if you would like to get 25% off at scienceinsport.com, use the discount code SISCP25. And takes it ahead of Ackerman, then comes Danny Van Pommel, and then uh, comes Fred Wright, and it is Roglic that remounts. You're a rider, I suppose. Your talents they cover a, a broad sort of sweep of different kind of terrains, different types of races. You know, you, you you're a good time trialist, you're a fast finisher, but sometimes you, even when you speak to sprinters, some of them will say, "Well, I need to work on my weakness, i.e., climbing to I'm fresher, and that's how I." that's how I sprint well. You know, I think I've spoken to Sam Bennett about this before. Um, whereas there are others who say, no, lean into your strengths. And this, I mean, this applies to life in general as well. I mean, where would you sort of situate yourself or maybe, you know, it's Tim that provides the guidance on this, but are you thinking more next year, lean into the strengths or work on the weaknesses? I think, I think to be honest, I don't, you know, I think I'm, I'm happy going, going full on, on the strengths I think I just think back to you know what I know you know he's not working with the team anymore but I remember when sort of first spoke to Rod before joining the team that's he said you just you know focus on your strengths and I think maybe he meant that for the first year but I kind of it seems like that approach is working so I don't really want to how would you personally define your greatest strengths as compared with other riders I mean we all, we see how they manifest themselves on the road but how what do you think your biggest strengths are I think it's that you know being able to just keep keep going with you know keep I think you know when I'm on my best shape I can you know do repeat kind of shorter shorter efforts you know like like you would in you know in Flanders and sort of not not die off so much I think that's that kind of that fitness almost like where I think that's the, you know that's what sort of translates to the sort of third week of a Grand Tour. It doesn't affect me. It's I can sort of keep. Yeah. It's sort of that way of sort of keeping going. And then also just, I think I got, you know, I, I mean, I even I was getting better at it in the world. But just you know, reading the race last year, I was okay. At the, the end of the race, maybe not so great, but actual sort of picking the right move and being in the breakaway and stuff. Like I think I've. You know, I've actually that's definitely something that I've always been pretty pretty good at spotting. I think, you know, like racing on in, instinct. I think that's what I'm gonna try and sort of take into next year is I think when I you know, the the finishes of some of these stages I, I kinda let emotion and other things influence what what I'm what I'm doing. Whereas actually, you know, when I'm just towards the start of a you know, this is when you start in a stage where you wanna be in the breakaway, for example, I'm much more relaxed about it and I'm not really thinking I'm, I'm reacting more on instinct and I think that's when I actually end up making 
the better decisions and I end up in the breakaway. Mm. But then, you you know, when you're racing with a finish, there's loads of other stuff going on. So you kind of almost, you know, I think I was more, you know, more likely to make a mistake. But it's just sort of about being a bit more cool-headed, I think, you know. I mean, you, you said, well, you said a minute ago, but I've heard you say it a few times, you like Grand Tour racing. It's one of the reasons you like Grand Tour racing because you know you've got a lot, lot of opportunities. You kind of reload, you reset, control out, delete the next day. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the kind of, I think the positivity thing comes into it as well. Like, I'm, you know, keep wanting to go to the next opportunity, the next opportunity. Mm. Like, like, I think that's kind of even... Even when how I pl- I can apply I apply that to my training or whatever I'm kind of a, I'm a pretty opt- optimistic person I think that, that that helps with these things sometimes like you know obviously I was gutted that with some of them a couple of them stages of the world but he's always just trying to look for the look for the next chance or yeah try and just be a bit be positive about it in as much as you possibly can. So why did you think? That you wanted to study psychology at university. <laughs> yeah, well, I Talking, speaking of <laughs> mindset, I um, I think to be honest, I think I I overthink things way too much. I'd, I'd start thinking about, mm. yeah, but I I do find it it's interesting. Mm. So, well, is that something you? Th- because some people apply to university and it's literally you know whatever they feel best about in the two months before they do the application. Or was that something that you thought about for a long time? I think to be honest, again, my my dad did did a psychology open university degree sort of when I was a bit younger and I kind of always not that I was reading the books when I was 10 or 11 but I think I I always I think because of that found it found it pretty fascinating do you use a sports psychologist now have you no I, ha- I haven't maybe you know maybe I should have someone telling me what to what to think at the end of it at the, at the last sort of kilometer of the stage of a grand tour he's the one in the team no I think that's, it's a good point. I think actually, something a sports psychologist in World Tour teams is not something that there are a couple. There's um, what's the girl called at Trek Segafredo? There's a lady at Trek Segafredo, Elisabetta, I think her name is. Okay, I didn't. I don't think many. Te- there's no. not. It's not that common. I think that would be an interesting thing to in, yeah. sort of start introducing because I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sort of thinking about it in, from a performance perspective, but I think also just from a mental health perspective, I think it's actually really, really important. I think, you know, cycling is a great sport, and we all have we have great jobs and get paid good money for it. But there's a lot of problems, with, you know, that I can that you can imagine start coming out with, yeah. you know, with when it's like whether it's like weight or yeah. whatever. I'm kind of, not yeah. I mean, when you were talking about your dad not getting parts. You know, often think about in professional cycling, the peloton is largely made up of people who excelled at this sport at one point and at one point were the best in their region, in their country, in the world in some instances. And then they turn pro and they're getting their head kicked in. A large proportion of the peloton is getting their head kicked in. Yeah, I think that's, you know, everyone was up there in the junior world championships when they were, you know, like everyone had the big race that they did well in when they were junior and imagined themselves being you know, on kind of a, winning the stage of the tour or, or whatever. I think it's, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to, you know, and a lot of guys sort of go into that, you know, happy working for, because you can get so much joy out of just, you know, helping someone else achieve success. But I think it's, yeah, it would be interesting to talk to, because, you know, some some guys might just be putting on, <laughs> putting it on like they, they're enjoying it. I don't know. It's a, yeah. You've, 
transitioned, you've been fortunate and because of your ability, you, you transitioned very quickly to being someone who the team works for at times or, or you're certainly protected and, um, you know, the, the DS stands up on the bus and says, look, Fred, you know, we want you to do something in the race today. What was the first time at, at Bahrain that that happened? It kind of was slowly sort of come, like, set, like Benelux tour last year. Okay. It was like, oh, Fred is a potential option for the G. You know, like it was a potential option for the. Like, what about? I think they sort of slowly kind of they drip fed it in almost. Okay. Like as as I was as I was progressing, so it's quite. Your first welter though was I remember the stage finish, an uphill stage finish in the rain in Puebla, this in the Puebla de Sanabria, and you finished. What was it? Fourth. I think that was a more of a kind of like, okay, Fred, it's you can have a go. It, it, it's kind of switched from. Yeah. You have a go at this finish to your an idea of you know you you could be an option to to then being you are the plan for this race. It's kind of like I think it's it's kind of nicely followed the pattern of you know how I've progressed is what the you know kind of what the team have wanted out of me. I think it's 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 definitely nice. I think it was, but I again, it's like dealing with that pressure and letting people down. It's like there's that adds. Again, like I said, that I overthink things quite a lot. I think that kind of almost could go against me. I don't know. He's thinking about how you, you know, you, yeah, thinking about what other people think, like over, overthinking things, basically. I think I could, like in stage 19 of work, for example. Question. They haven't reacted so far. Fred Wright on the wheel of Mas Pedersen in the green jersey, as you can see. Mas Pedersen who sets off, and guess what? Mike Turnison is on his shoulder. They want to mix it with him, so does Fred Wright. Fred Wright coming up. Is he going to get on the throw? Oh, this could be. Oh, Pedersen takes it at the very last. You know, everyone was riding for me when it was sort of me and Mads sprinting against each other. And I'd say that was the first time where it was like all in, every, people working on the front. To, to help you know like doing proper that I'd never hadn't quite had that full full support before and that and was from the morning it was unequivocal yeah, it was yeah. going to be for you yeah 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 I think that was that was wicked and I kind of but again that was a situation was like okay you know they were they were happy that you know if, if, if I won it was like oh my god that's amazing but they didn't expect me to be able to beat Mad. I kind of I'm interested to what it's going to be like when it's I'm in a race where it's like you should be. You should win this one. Yeah, I think that's potentially where I've I've faltered before. Is it's like that stage stage seven where I I should have won that one. I was the fastest guy in that group, and yeah, I, I, I balls it up. The centre of the road, Fred Wright responds though. He's got a great kick on him, and here comes uh, uh, Harry Sweeney. Harry Sweeney, is he going to be the fastest of them? Fred Wright's going to go all the way, is he? Oh, Harada's not out of this either. He comes to the centre of the road. Fred Wright wants this so badly, but others do too. Oh, it had to be Manistella. He comes through, he bashes the handlebars. Obviously, there's pressure can build as well, depending on how the team's doing. I mean, you see situations over the course of a season where you know, everyone knows and you can really sense that team needs a result and then their captain, their leader is under a lot of pressure. I think maybe that that was played into it a little bit as well. You know, like, because two days ago, I don't think on that stage five when I was in the break, I would have changed changed anything necessarily, but it was still a bit like, oh, damn it, you know, could have won it. Won. And then to, to, to two days later when, you know, I, you could really sort of feel in the team, it's like, oh, friend. We really wish you could have, you know, as, in the nicest way possible. They're like, oh, oh, God damn it, why didn't you win that stage? You're no longer the promising sort of second year pro that everyone's, <laughs> everyone's, you know, 
pleasantly thrilled that you're getting good results. It's like, nah, we no, need no, something we, back yeah, from you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it still, it wasn't quite like we need to, like, mm. it was more just, I think, you know, you, you spend three weeks with people, yeah. you've got all these people on mechanics, whatever, all working towards the same thing. I think I almost, yeah, I wanted it too much, not just for me, but it's the whole, you know, the mm. celebrate everything yeah. for everyone. It's such a massive thing. Mm. You know, I think back to the first time we did the tour when we won three stages. I think, like, every, you know, the, the evening after that happened, it's just everyone's just yeah. completely overjoyed. It's, yeah. And I really kind of wanted that for the team that day. But again, that's it's thinking about things too much, probably. <laughs> Fred, I think we're going to get kicked out in a minute. They're going to get the hoover out and start whistling the national anthem. But um, you, we mentioned the team there. Um, obviously, you made the decision midway through the Vuelta, whether that was when it was announced, you're going to renew with the team. I mean, I don't think it's any secret. You had other offers. You had good offers. You could have gone. I mean, I think there's always this assumption that you could go to Ineos, that any British rider could go to Ineos. I'm pretty sure they'd have you. Just um, lay out again why you chose to stay. A team where, let's face it, the guy who brought you there, Rod, had left, and a lot of the British influence had left. Yeah, I think, you know, even... You know, my, that's, that was my worry going into my, my second year, mm. was when Rod had left, what it was going to be like. And that, that was almost like the... I was like, oh, no. You know, it was all this... You know, this that same... The, the training camp was really similar. Every, everyone was, you know, it's like it's like kind of being part of the part of the family still almost. Mm. And I really sort of feel feel part of the team. I feel completely relaxed there. And yeah, these three years have gone gone by really quickly. And I, you know, I can see see the next three years, you know, being more successful. And I think it's that's it's just the opportunities side of things. I, I'm going to be at someone to be worked for in the next in the next three years, whereas. You know, I'm with, in a, in a, in a, in a, a better team. Then, mate, you know, you'd, you'd be working, you'd be a, an option, but working for someone else. And you know, I still, you know, I need to. You maybe I'd, I'll, I'll end up riding better if I'm, you know, a, a second supportive option. Maybe that's what how I how I perform my best. But I think it's it's definitely I've, I can't. I've got to take the opportunity of being, you know, being a key guy for Flanders and Roubaix. I mean, who. Who wouldn't to be, you know, to be help helpful for the biggest bike racing in the world and the ones that I want to do well in in the next few years? I think that's you kind of can't go away from that. And you know, money's whether you forget about all the money stuff. It's you know, actually, some people I want, don't. But I, I want to, you know, I want to try and you know try and be on the podium in Flanders or Roubaix in the next couple of years. And that's you know, with this team is where I'm going to do that. I guess you've got an interesting point of comparison living with Ethan because he's similar age, similar-ish rider. I mean, certainly there's a there's an overlap with the time trial in, fast finishing. Yeah, I say, I say to him, he's like a slightly better version of me in in, in some ways. Like there's other things that I'm a bit better at, but he's almost yeah. It'd be great to be on the same you know same team together or or whatever. But and I could sort of see you know Ineos, you know they do get that that little extra. Like it's, they are a level above, I think, in terms of support. But no, I'm I'm so happy with this team, and I think it's it's it really sort of created a kind of idea of what you know what we want to do the next the next few years. So it's really exciting. You know, you have said 
I think um, I'm 23 and I've been at two tours of France. I've had two drugs raids, and that was to do. That's to do with the team. Um, you know, the team was targeted, and people might look at that and think, well, one easy way to just distance himself from that whole situation is just leave the team. Yeah, I think that I, I, I'm not going to lie and say that that didn't, you know, influence what I thought. You know, I was like, oh, do I really, you know, am I really committed to this? But I, I really believe what you know what the teams. The team's standpoint, which is just, yeah, some there's some sort of political, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it's. Yeah. Uh, have you read some of the theories, the, yeah, the big elaborate one that you know came out through blogs during the Tour de France? Yeah, that was you know almost that almost sort of became a bit a bit of a joke, like on the at the dinner table, like oh look, it's whoever this was has put, released another another article or whatever. But I think yeah, I kind of. I don't really know what to say about it. To be honest, it's a, it's a it's a tricky one, but it's not something that I'm I'm not concerned about at all. Really, I think you know even you know you mentioned it then. I'm like you know start thinking about it again. But really, it's yeah, it's not. It annoys me that the sport was what it was before. That's that's the only thing when you know when you talk about the, the raids and stuff because it's you know whatever it is, it's a result of the sport being tarnished by people what people were doing before because I'm almost 100% certain that there's no one cheating no one doing anything prohibited or whatever at the, in the in the peloton now and yeah I think it's, it annoys me that okay yeah what you know the sport of the past has mm. put us in this position you know it's like BBC never say anything really about cycling and then as soon as we had the raid it was like drugs raid mm. team Bahrain it's kind of it's a shame but yeah, we just that's that's just the way it goes. <laughs> get a side to the line. It's past Pedersen, of course. Roglic has done the done a tremendous job, and look at the retrieval. Oh, and down goes Roglic at the very last touch of wheels. Pedersen takes it ahead of Ackerman. Then comes Danny Van Pommel, and then uh, comes Fred Wright, and it is Roglic that remounts. And what from one relative, I don't think he's particularly uncomfortable talking about it, but from one uncomfortable topic to another, just before they kick us out, um, Primoz Roglic, is he getting a Christmas card? Are you getting one from him? I, I, yeah, maybe I should send him one. I'd like to just speak, like, I kind of was wondering if it's some kind of, how much of it, it was him and whether the team influenced him to, with the, sure. what came, what came out. I don't know. I think. You can get his number, can't you? Yeah. Give him well, a call. I, I DM'd him on Instagram after the, after it all happened and I still haven't had a reply, so. But See, this probably... is the problem with your generation. <laughs> the, the Gen Z is you don't like phone calls, do you? No. I really <laughs> None of you like, do. No, no. I, I would hate to talk to him <laughs> on the phone. And um, Fred, so last thing, we mentioned Christmas. What's on your Christmas list? What would you like to get for Christmas? And what's Christmas like in your household in your family um i am soon to be moving into a new place so anything nice house related little bowls and all that sort of stuff i kind of yeah feel very mature in saying that i want house items that's kind of ikea allowed some people have like a no ikea policy i think i'll probably do one big trip to ikea before i move in and then then but you know like little christmas the you know a bit if there's a bit of thought going into some a bowl or something nice that don't know why I've said bowl but <laughs> yeah little nice items for the house and what, and what do people get from you ten pound decathlon voucher <laughs> policeman's hat for you dad yeah um, I've, got, I've got to think about my my gifts because I think yeah especially you know my family are aware that I've 
signed a new contract <laughs> probably think, expecting very modest new contract <laughs> minimum wage <laughs> they're probably expecting uh, yeah expecting big things so it's quite quite a bit of pressure I think for Christmas but no it's going to be really good fun should be back in back in Hernhill over Christmas so yeah it's going to be good well Fred um, thank you very much for your time and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this evening because I think Fabian Cancellara and Tom Boonen are meeting for the first time since they ended their career and Tom Boonen I don't know if you're aware of um, you know, Tom Boonen said some things to the effect or sort of insinuated things about motors in bikes oh, uh, about Cancellara so it could be could be quite um, quite lively on I, stage I can't wait for that I've, I've watched the uh, the video of the of them two going up the moor in Flanders several several times so yeah that's going to be really good fun I'm really um, two heroes I guess uh, this is this is warm me up sort of talking about yeah talking about cycling the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.